0: And if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John, of course, is the fourth book in the New Testament, the fourth gospel written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' first disciples, and uh, has a lot about Christ's life and earthly ministry, and it's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But we are continuing our series this morning called Who's Your One? Who's Your One? Thinking of one person in your life, one person that you know maybe from work, maybe from your family, maybe a friend from somewhere else who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't yet come to a personal relationship with God through Christ, who hasn't come to follow Jesus themselves. We all have at least one person like that in our lives that we can be thinking of and praying for. I hope you've done that and written the name of that person down and that you've been intentional to pray for them on a regular basis, that you've been intentional to try to find time to meet with them. That's something I'm going to try to do this week, Lord willing, with with my one. Uh, But as we're looking through the series, we're looking at the way Jesus ministered to individual people During his earthly ministry, we're looking at these specific encounters where he went and ministered to a person one-on-one, and we're looking and seeing how that applies to us and how we can follow his example in ministering to others in order to tell them about who Jesus is. That's our goal. That's our desire is to, to be witnesses, to see other people come to a saving knowledge and a saving relationship with Jesus. And I'm calling our message today, Ministering to Ones You Wouldn't Expect Ministering to ones you wouldn't expect. Now last week we looked at the first of uh, this series of encounters that Jesus has with individuals one-on-one. We looked at John chapter 3 and Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a very, re- he, he represents the religious type of person, the person who has a knowledge of the Bible, who is moral, upstanding, respected in the community, but still falls short of knowing who Jesus really is. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That meant he was a religious leader in Roman Jewish times, in the time that Jesus was on the earth. He knew the Bible well, at least the Old Testament. Knew it very well. Many of the Pharisees had, uh, if not the entire Old Testament, at least the first five books of the Bible memorized word for word. And he knew a thing or two about Jesus. He had seen Jesus' miracles and heard Jesus' teaching. Yet his knowledge of who Jesus is fell woefully short. He didn't understand. And that's a picture of perhaps how to minister to people we know who come from a church background but haven't truly come to know Christ. And they can sometimes be the hardest ones of all to minister to because they think they're all right. But what about people who are very different from us? What about people who don't share Our values. What about people who come from a different culture, who come from a who have a different lifestyle, perhaps? Well, fortunately, Jesus ministered to people like that as well and shows us an example. And we're going to see that in John chapter four. But before we read this morning, I want to pray for us one more time and just ask the Lord to focus us in on his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each man, woman, and child in here this morning. Thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would have mercy on me right now, Lord, and have mercy on everyone in this room as we look at it together. Father, let it be clear to us, God. Speak to us, open our minds, open our hearts to receive your word, Lord, to apply it, to live according to it. Let it change us, let it shape us to be more conformed to the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I said last week, we looked at the encounter Jesus had with Nicodemus. This week we're going to see an encounter with a different sort of person. And that's right here for us in John chapter 4. So look with me this morning in God's Word at John chapter 4, and we're going to read all 42 verses. So here's what God's Word says to us this morning. Follow along with me if you can. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, and again, those were the religious leaders at the time Jesus was on the earth, some of the religious leaders in Judaism. Uh, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Now, he was ministering in Judea, which was the southern region of what is today Israel. Galilee was the northern region. Galilee was where he was originally from. It says he had to travel through Samaria. Samaria was the middle region in what is modern-day Israel today. So he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sakkar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So Jesus comes to this village in the Samaria region, and this village happens to contain a famous landmark, Jacob's well. Jacob, of course, was also known as Israel, for whom the nation of Israel was named. He had 12 sons, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel descended. So this is where Jesus is. It's about noon. And it says in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw Water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water, Jar went into the town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. But uh, and, and his disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food... It's to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in the case of the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed for t- t- there two days. Many more believed because of what he said and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. Thank you for reading with me through that story. But I need all of you to see this whole picture of how Jesus comes to this woman, a woman that most would not have expected him to talk with. Even the woman herself was very surprised that Jesus spoke to her. But then so much positive comes as a result. Now, what is it that we can glean from this encounter of how to minister to people? Because notice, this was not the typical person that people would have expected Jesus to minister to. This was not the kind of person people would have expected Jesus to associate with. Yet Jesus comes to her and changes her life. The thing we need to see first, well, there's two things, very simple. I want you to see Jesus' use of situations and methods. And then I want you to see Jesus's reasons and results. First, Jesus' use of situations and methods. And methods and then his use of, of results and reasons. First we see in the first part of the story his use of, of situations and methods. And we need to see the, the issues that set up this whole story. We see that Jesus is traveling. He's traveling from Judea, which is in the southern part of what's modern-day Israel, to Galilee, which is the northern part. And to go through, he to get there, he had to go through a middle region called Samaria. Now this is Maybe not immediately significant to us, but that was a big deal. Why? We saw it in verse 9. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why is that? Well, you have to have a little bit of knowledge of the history of that city, Samaria. Samaria was a significant city in Israel. Way back in the times of King David and Solomon, Israel was one nation of 12 tribes that had descended from the man Jacob, also known as Israel. But at some point after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came to the throne, 10 of those tribes left and said, okay, we're done with with the lineage of David. We're going to form our own king. They left the capital city in Jerusalem, and two of those 10 tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained faithful to the line of David in Jerusalem. But the rest of the 10 tribes started their own kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was called the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom made Samaria their capital. Well, over time, because the Israelites did not stay faithful to the law God had given them, God carried out the threats that he had laid out when he made a covenant with them through Moses. He said, if you do not obey the commands that I'm giving you, you're going to go into exile. Sure enough, that's what happened. A nation called Assyria came in dispossessed Samaria, and brought in many people from other nations. Well, what happened over time is the Jewish people who were left in Samaria intermarried with these other nations. And they became considered, if you will, uh, to to use a pejorative term, half-breeds to the rest of the Jews. And the Jews viewed them as outcasts, as ceremonially unclean. And many of the Jewish people would deliberately go around, take a longer route around Samaria just to avoid going through Jesus wasn't going to do that. He came. It says he had to go through Samaria. That wasn't just because that was the quickest route to get to Galilee. The Greek there in that verse where it says he had to go through Samaria, verse 4, is literally it was necessary for him to travel. And anytime that phrase it's a Greek phrase, for, it's a simple word, day, occurs in the Gospel of John, it usually speaks of something God was setting up. And indeed, God was setting this up profoundly change this woman's life. And notice it says he was coming through. It says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there and Jesus worn out from his journey. Jesus was worn out. He was tired. The son of God, even though he was fully God, he was also fully man. We see his humanity on display here. He was tired. He was thirsty from all the walking. He was probably hungry too. And he comes to this well and he takes advantage of, of a common situation that's in front of him. He takes advantage of the common ground that he has with this woman. This woman, it says, comes up to draw water. It's about noon. Why would a woman come in the heat of the day to draw water? This was not the usual time of day that you would come to draw water. Most people would would come either early in the morning or late at night when it was cooler. This woman was coming at noon because she knew nobody else would be there. And we'll find out why she wanted to avoid people after a bit. But for now, you just need to know that that she was there by herself. Jesus was there by himself. His disciples had gone into town to to buy food. So he says to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. That seems like a fair enough request. I mean, we just saw that Jesus is indeed tired, thirsty, and hungry. It's a reasonable request, right? But it shocks this woman. This woman is stunned. She says, how is it that you, how is it that you, a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Now we see the main reason for that in the second phrase there in verse 9, where John says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Many Jewish people considered Samaritans to be ritually and ceremonially unclean, so that if they were to have contact with them, they would be defiled. And there was a lot of tension. There was so much tension historically between the Jews and Samaritans, there, there was a, almost a little skirmish between them, and Rome had to be called in to clean up the mess. So these were people who, who put uh, any, I mean, not to, not to in any way minimize racial tensions that have existed in our own country, but these would probably even exceed those. So this is the, the kind of unexpectedness of this whole situation. No one would have expected Jesus to talk to this woman, much less a Samaritan woman. By the way, that was a simple fact too. Men typically didn't talk to women one-on-one at this time in history, at least in public. But Jesus comes to this woman because he has something more important to share with her. He takes advantage of this common ground. They're right there at the well. There's a common situation right there in front of them. We have common ground every day that we see with with lost people, people who are different from us. We may look at people who have different values, different experiences. They come from different um, economic backgrounds or educational backgrounds, and we may think, how in the world do I talk with them? But there's situations in your life, there's common ground that you have with those people that you can take advantage of. That's what Jesus does here. He's right there. He sees the situation right in front of him, and he takes advantage of it. Sometimes that's the first thing we need to do is just to open our eyes to the people who are around us and see the common ground that we have with them and take advantage of it. You need to lay down the stereotypes that you have and you need to see the opportunity that's in front of you. That's what Jesus does. And he speaks to her and he says, hey, when she asked him the question, he's, he redirects the question and says, hey, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you living water. And this perks her interest. Is this the living water that Jesus speaks of? Well, we find out later in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. This is what Jesus says there. He says, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Verse 39. He said this about the Holy Spirit. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus we're going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, that's something we find in the Scriptures is that the Holy Spirit of God indwells those who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But this woman is still confused. She, she says, sir, you, you don't have a bucket. Where, where are you going to get this living water at? She's still thinking in physical terms. She's still thinking in in terms of water she can actually physically drink, whereas Jesus is talking about something spiritual. Now, let's stop for a second here and state something that we sometimes overlook, and that's this. This woman, Jesus was a complete stranger to this woman. This woman had no prior knowledge of who Jesus was, What he had done, she had not heard of miracles he had performed or of his teaching. He was quite literally a perfect stranger to her. Get it? Because Jesus is perfect and he was a stranger? Okay, anyway. There you go. But seriously, he was a complete stranger to her. She had no idea about him, about who he he was. He was just some Jewish guy to her. But yet here he was, the son of God incarnate, talking with her, offering her something great. Now, she's very different from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was someone who had heard of Jesus. He was knowledgeable of the Old Testament. This woman has a little bit of religious knowledge. She knows who Jacob is, but she really doesn't have that much knowledge. Nicodemus was someone who would have been respectable in his community. This woman would have been seen as an outcast. Here's the thing. They both needed Jesus equally. All types of people, whether they're morally respectable whether they're not so respectable, whether they see eye to eye with us politically, or whether they couldn't be more politically opposed to us. If they haven't come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's what they need. They need Christ, and it's up to us to take advantage of opportunities to show them. And that's what Jesus begins to do. He begins to to pique her interest, telling her about this living water. He takes advantage of the common ground he has with her. He also does this. He confronts her brokenness with openness. He confronts her brokenness with openness. He says, he says, verse, 17, verse 16, Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Now, only Jesus could have known what he was doing. We are not always given intimate knowledge of people we're talking to, right? Now, Jesus knows a thing or two about this woman. He knows about her life. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus hits her kind of with a spiritual gut punch, that's right, because you've had five husbands. The man you're living with now isn't your husband. Now, we might look at that and think, wow, that's a kind of a blunt thing to say. And it, and it was. But he wasn't doing so with belligerence. He wasn't doing this to be mean. He was doing this to, to be honest and for her to be honest with herself about her life situation and to, to really expose her need for what he was giving her. There are times, now you don't need to lead off with that when you're talking to your friends, okay, about Jesus. That's probably, you don't need to go out saying, hey, you, I know where you were last night. I know what you were doing. I've followed your social media and I know what you're looking at on the internet. That's probably not the most effective way. But as you're talking to somebody, pray for this because we're not, we're not granted this kind of knowledge inherently like Jesus had. Jesus inherently had this knowledge, okay? He was omniscient. We're not omniscient. But you can pray for insight into the lives of people you're talking to, and sometimes God, you might be surprised at the things God would put on your heart to, to share and talk about and raise issues with those who you're talking about. It's not that we never need to confront brokenness in the lives of our friends and family. Sometimes we do need to bring that to their attention. We need to do so like Jesus does here, not to be me, but just to to highlight the issues in order to to point out their need for Christ. We need to confront brokenness with openness, and we can do that. Sometimes there comes a point where where you will just have a sense of what a person is going through because you know their life. And God will put that on your heart to to raise that issue as a a point of need, not to to beat them over the head with it, but just to to use it as a launching point to, to point to Christ as the answer for that need. Then lastly, we want to see that Jesus removes misconceptions about what it means to worship God. Jesus removes misconceptions. We see this in, in verses 19 through, through 24, uh, really through 26, I apologize. The woman says, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And historically, that was true. The Jerusalem was the site of the temple where God's presence was said to dwell uniquely. And that was the place that, as the Old Testament sometimes says, that God chose to place his name, the city of Jerusalem. Indeed, the city of Jerusalem points forward to the city of heaven. Heaven is called the Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was indeed an important place. But this was a misconception on her part. She was saying, you know, we worship here. You just say you're supposed to worship there. What do you think? And Jesus says, hey, it's not so much about the physical place you worship. It's about the means by which you worship. Are you worshiping by spirit and truth? And what Jesus is saying there is basically, are you worshiping through the Holy Spirit? When he says in spirit and truth, I believe he's talking about worshiping by the leading of the Holy Spirit and then worshiping according to the truth, which is God's word, which by the way, the word of God is also called the sword of the spirit. Elsewhere in the gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. So he's just saying that worship is really about following the leading of the Holy Spirit and that leading is always gonna be in line with the leading of the truth. They're never gonna contradict each other. Jesus is saying, you're gonna come to know and worship by knowledge of the word of God. In other words, it's not so much about how you dress. It's not so much about the building or the style of music you utilize. It's about are you following the leading of the Spirit, which is revealed to us in the Word? Are you following the Word? There are misconceptions, way too many that we have time to cover this morning. But there are misconceptions that people have about Christianity today, right? And that that they have about what it means to worship the Lord. We need to help remove those misconceptions and the way to do that is to know the Word. What does the Word say about worship? Well, the Word says we should worship according, uh, again, using the Word as, as the primary basis of worship. That includes the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word. It includes singing the Word. It says in multiple places in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, teaching one another, admonishing one another. Uh, There's many other aspects. The Word teaches us about observing the ordinances of baptism and communion, or also known as the Lord's Supper. And there's many other aspects of worship. It speaks praying together. But what I need you to see is by knowing what the Word says about worship and what the Word says about how we relate to God, we can help dispel people's misconceptions. That's something I've tried to do in conversations I've had with, with individuals who, who have a, a, a wrong picture of Christianity or a skewed picture of Christianity. And you'll run into people like that too. The more you know the word and the more you interact with them, you can help remove those misconceptions. So those are Jesus's methods. Those are Jesus's use of situations. We need to use that common ground like he did But then we need to see Jesus' reasons and results. And very quickly here, very quickly. The first result we see is a changed life. Look at verses 27. It says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then here it is, verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, one, went into the town, two, and three, told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This woman's life now has been transformed. She came there to put water in a jar, regular water, ordinary water, earthly water. But then she left herself as a living container of living water because she had been transformed. By Christ, this is the result that can come. It's not always guaranteed that when you share Christ with somebody like Christ shared himself with this woman that they're automatically going to be changed on the spot, but it is a result that we can hope for. And it is a result that absolutely will not come if we don't share Christ with people. We want to see people transform from seeking after earthly thirsts to people who have their thirst, their true thirst, their spiritual thirst met in Christ. That's a result that can come when we share Christ with those who society might not expect us to share with, who we ourselves might not expect to respond favorably to the gospel. But we have to step out in faith because that result will not come if we don't step out and share Christ with them. There's a changed life. And here's something, if I could really focus in on one thing, it's this reason. And the reason is, is a profound attitude that Jesus had. The attitude that we need. And this attitude, I would dare say, is is the missing ingredient in terms of why we don't see more people responding to Christ in our lives. It's the attitude that Jesus displays in verse 34, but I want to lead into it with the context. It says, in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. Remember, Jesus was exhausted. He was worn out. He needed to eat something. But what does he say? He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples thought, "Um, somebody bring him some food? I mean, again, they're still thinking in terms of the physical. They're thinking, I guess Jesus already ate something. And then he tells them, no, you guys are missing the point. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's Jesus' attitude. His attitude was that doing the will of the Father... Doing the will, finishing his work, was like food, food to him. And the context makes this statement all the more powerful because remember, Jesus would have wanted food. He wanted water. He asked the woman for water because he was thirsty. He probably would have wanted food in that moment. His disciples, remember, had just bought food. He was physically hungry. But yet he says this, he says, doing the will of the Father, that's food to me. Finishing his work, that's food to me. That's the kind of hunger, that's the kind of appetite that we need. That I'm afraid too many of us are missing. Is this true for us? Can we say this is true for us? That our food, that that my food is to do the will of God the Father, is to finish his work. Because I fear more often than not, our food is is getting other things that we want when we want them. Our food is... Is our favorite team winning the big game? Our food is seeing that new movie that we've been waiting all year to come out. Our food is going out to eat at our favorite restaurant after church. And on and on we could go. And all those things are good. There's a place for all those things. Don't mishear me. I'm not putting things like that down. There's a place like that for those things in our lives. But I hope and pray that we have a greater hunger and a greater satisfaction for doing the will of the Father, that that would become our food. And I pray that you would make that your prayer, that God will give you that appetite, that hunger for doing his will, that God would make it as food to you to do his will, that we would pray for that, that we would want that because food nourishes, it satisfies, especially when you're hungry, right? We want to, to have that same kind of hunger, that same kind of desire let us pray things like this. Lord, condition the appetite of my heart, the attitude, the desire, the taste of my heart. Give us a taste, give us a desire to do your will. Psalm 37.4, this is a well-known verse. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. A lot of people love that promise and a lot of people totally misunderstand it. Because they read it and they think, oh, yes, I delight myself in the Lord, and that new car that I desire, he's going to give it to me. That smoking hot wife or that really hot husband that I want, and God's going to give it to me. That child, that scholarship to that school that I want to attend, God's going to give it to me. No, 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 no. That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying that he will condition the desires, the things that you want, God will condition them where you desire what he desires. As you delight yourself in him, his desires become your desires. That's what we need. We need to get to that place where we have a hunger and appetite. I think that's the missing ingredient, folks, in too many churches. we, We might say we have that appetite, but we're not really driven like that where we can truly say, it is my food to do the will of the Father. I pray that God will get us to that place where we will have that appetite to do his will. Last but not least, we need to see the result that many believe. Many believe. It says in verse 39, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 41, many more believed because of what he said. So many more come and hear what Jesus said. It says many believed just by hearing what the woman said about Jesus. And this, says, many more believed when they heard what he said. They said, we no longer believe because of what you said, speaking of the woman, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. That's what people need to come to know too. And that's a result that can happen. But I don't believe it's going to happen apart from having that appetite. We as a people of God, because God could save whoever he wanted to by any means he wanted to, but guess what means he's decided? And And his plan, us as his followers, the church is his plan. There is no plan B. There is only one plan, the local church expanding the kingdom by making disciples in all the world, telling people about the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. I believe we need to come to a place where we have that hunger, where we have that appetite for doing his will, and that we long to see those results. Or we're not afraid to engage people who may be very different. This woman, again, was, a, was the polar opposite. It was probably the last person that most people who knew Jesus would have expected him to talk to, would have expected to respond favorably. But notice that she does. Her life has changed. She becomes not only a, a, a Christ follower, but she tells other people, and they come to Christ too. That result won't happen if we're unwilling to share if we're afraid to share. And sometimes I think we're afraid to share because we haven't got that appetite yet. So as our praise band comes up, I want to invite you to respond in a few ways. If you're here and you've never come to that place where you've experienced Christ coming into your life, where you've come to know him as Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to trust him today. If you don't know where you stand, if you've never come to a point where you've trusted in Jesus and you've Believed in his work, his perfect life, his death on the cross for your sins, and his resurrection from the dead. I want to invite you to just come and and ask him to be Lord of your life today. Uh, Just praying a prayer, that does not save you. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. But we are called to call on the Lord. The scriptures say to call on the Lord. If you call on the Lord, you will be saved. I want to invite you to to call on him to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to surrender to him this morning. Now, if you're here and you've already done that, you say, I'm saved. I've come to know Jesus. He has saved me. He's delivered me from sin. He's he's transferred me from the world to the kingdom. Praise God. Who are you telling about it? Do you have a hunger? Do you have that drive? Do you have that appetite? I'd like to invite you to just come and pray for that appetite this morning, for God to give you that hunger, that desire, that drive to see people saved, to see people saved. Come to know God, to to do the will of the Father in your life, to finish his work. Because God's left us on this earth to finish his work. Pray for that drive. Pray for that desire. Maybe that person that you've been praying for is still on your heart. You haven't had a chance to talk with them yet. You just want to come pray for them. Whatever the Lord might be leading you to do, I want to invite you to stand at this time. You can respond right where you're standing. You can just Sing this song as a prayer. Jesus, keep me near the cross. What a, uh, an, an appropriate response uh, this morning. But if you want to come forward and pray, you can do that as well. But let's not leave the same way we came in this morning. Let's seek the Lord. Let's respond to his truth together this morning.